1 Samuel. And I love 1 Samuel. I love 2 Samuel as well. And also 1 and 2 Kings. Uh, did you know they're kind of all one story? And in some Bibles, in some traditions, it's just one, two, three, four kingdoms. It's just all one big story. So there's your, your fun fact for the night. Um, so you, I, I, you are in chapters 13 through 15. Is that correct? Yes? Um, I am going to sort of preach out of First Samuel 13 through 15. And I hope I don't step on any toes, uh, Chad or Kelly. Um, because I'm going to give you sort of a preview, a, a lens through which to view what's in front of you, all right, as you encounter. So at this point in the story, uh, Saul has begun his decline. I mean, he's been established as king, troubling markers from day one. He's beginning his decline. At the same time, uh, this guy named David is going to come into the scene. That happens in chapter 16. So here in 13 through 15, we get Saul's, uh, a picture of the way that Saul's uh, reign went. And there were some minor positives, but it was mostly just complicated struggles and um, never really got in the swing of of being the king that God desired over his people. Um, So let's go to, I actually want to start in the book of Acts, chapter 13. It's easy to remember, Acts 13, 1 Samuel 13. Verse 14. Nope, that's the wrong verse. Oh, it's 1 Samuel 13, 14. It's Acts 13, 16. So uh, Paul, this is a little background. Paul is giving a sermon here in the synagogue at um, Pisidian Antioch. Okay, this is not the Antioch that's just north of Jerusalem. This is the one further inland uh, on one of their journeys. This is actually their first journey. Uh, okay, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. I don't know what the motion was like. Maybe something like this or maybe like this. But he motioned with his hand. <laughs> Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. This is one of those places in Scripture where it's just a great... If you want a biblical summary of the Old Testament, here you have it. There's a couple other spots, but this is a good one. This is a really good one. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. He skips over judges. I like to do sometimes. Rather just skip over judges. He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. 
as he promised. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would anoint the hearing and the preaching and the reading of your word tonight. Lord, we want to have soft hearts, receptive hearts, good soil. We're here to meet with you, Father, in your word. So help us, Lord. Help us posture ourselves correctly so that we can experience the grace of your holy word tonight. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so back to 1 Samuel, chapter 13. Saul is king, and he's going to begin the process. One of the things that a king was to do was to defend the people, and and, uh, the Philistines had plagued the people for a while. I think you probably read about that in chapters 4 through 7. Just not a good time, not not a very strong position that Israel held at this point. So Saul, he's going to get an an army together. And uh, starting in verse 3, it says, Jonathan defeated the garrisons, the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So he begins this process, and it's actually, this is one of the positive things. He begins to unite the people. He begins to bring them together and give them a central leadership that is actually experiencing victory over the enemies. I mean, this is a good thing in Israel, okay? Never mind that it was Jonathan who did this. Saul got the credit, but uh, minor details, right? Um, it goes on. So he's, he's, he's fighting these battles. And it says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. Now Samuel would have been known as the prophet, and Samuel had anointed Saul, and Samuel had told, given Saul instructions about how to go about being the king. One of those instructions was, wait for me seven days. Don't continue in these battles. Don't continue in these fights until I come. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. This is a problem. We we, we united the people. We entered into battle, but now they're scattering. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. This is, happens. This, is, this is exactly the way that it always happens, right? As soon as, soon as you're done, as soon as he finished climbing up in the kitchen cabinet and eating the candy that he was not supposed to eat, 
dad came around the corner. And Samuel said, uh, oh no, it says, uh, this is funny. I think there's a lot of subtle humor here. Um, it says, Saul went out to meet him and greet him. You know, hey, hey Samuel. Hey man, good to see you. It's been a while, about seven days, I think. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, means God has, he's got his reasons ready to go. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. But he's got a reason. There was, there's, there was good reason to do this because we were about to lose the battle. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. Now, you remember, I think probably Chad or somebody has talked about one of the most important things for a king of Israel to do back in Deuteronomy 17, I believe, was to write his own Bible, keep it with him, write it so he would know it, so that he could keep the commands of the Lord. And this is Kingship 101. Do it God's way. My son Theo, he's, he's the middle child, and he he's kind of has that middle child uh, maverick mentality. You know, you've got to fend for yourself. Nobody ever... So his mantra every week in our Sunday morning family meeting is, Mommy's way right away. Right? That's... We've been working on that for probably a year and a half, two years. I, uh, no end in sight. <laughs> Mommy's way, right away. But a king was to have an obedient heart. A king was to not launch out and, and view scenarios and situations and, and calculate in his own mind the best way to approach this thing and the best way to... Uh, the best way to deploy resources of the kingdom. That's not the kind of leader that God was establishing for his people. God has a way. God's always been looking for people who want to hear and follow his way because it's the best way. It's the best for everybody. And so at every level of authority, all through the history of God's people, he's been saying, if you will just, if you would just do it the way that I say, it will go well with you. And the blessings of God will come forth into the earth. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And this is really what I want to talk about tonight, having a heart after God. God is looking for those who have a heart after him. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The Lord is looking for someone who will do it his way. Who will understand his heart. Who will not trust himself more than he trusts the word of the Lord. Who will not let the pressures of 
the responsibilities that he's been entrusted with cause him to fudge on the way that God wants it done. Who won't let other people's actions? The people are scattering. What are we going to do? I had to do this. The people needed something. No. That's not the way. You have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In 15, there's another situation that happens in chapter 15. In between there, there's this great story, one of the best Old Testament stories, I think, uh, where Jonathan goes up and he says, uh, well, you know the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer, right? They, they go up and nobody's, nobody's with him. And they, <laughs> Jonathan just gets this idea. He says, hey, let's, let's go over there and just see. Let's see if God's on our side. Right? This is a complete opposite way of approaching this, these situations from the way Saul was doing it. We'll get to that in a second. But what I want to talk about is the kingdom is now going to be torn away from Saul and given to someone who has a heart after God. That happens to be David. God has, has found David, found in David a man after his heart. So I want to talk about five characteristics of from First and Second Samuel, of a man who has a heart after God. Somebody with a heart after God. What, how does that play out in the story? What, what parts of the story illustrate what that means, to have a heart after God? Okay? And so number one is this. A man after God's heart knows how to worship. Knows how to worship. And I don't just mean... He knows how to sing songs, he knows that, but he knows the way in which God desires him to worship. First and second Samuel is bookended by two beautiful songs. It opens with Hannah's song. Right? When he when he receive, she receives the miraculous gift of Samuel and offers him to the Lord. At the end of 2 Kings, David sings a song. Let's go, let's go and read it. It's just seven verses long. He sings several songs throughout these books. He actually has a, a really pretty good book of songs called Psalms. You should check it out. 2 Samuel ends like this. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of the man who was raised on high... The anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless Morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. 
But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. There's a difference between somebody who exercises his rulership in the fear of God and worthless men who need to be... He says you can't even touch them. They're so prickly. They're so set in their own ways. They're like thorns. You can't even touch them with your bare hand. These types of people God is taking away, and he's establishing those who fear him. That's what it means to have a heart after God, to fear the Lord. It's another way of saying it. So David was the sweet psalmist of Israel. David was also the first to institute the singing of songs, joyful songs, to accompany the sacrifice at the temple. Right Before, it was just sort of a, a ritual that they did. David said, we need to do this. We need to keep doing this. It's important. Let's sing while we do it. It changes the whole, it changes the whole thing, doesn't it? It's strange how music, how singing suddenly makes things totally different. Now we're singing as we're offering these things to God. One of the Psalms says, I will offer in your tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. A man with a heart after God knows how to worship. A man with a heart after God understands that worship is a sacrifice. Worship is a laying down of my life at the feet of the Lord. But it's not merely a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that's done with a shout of joy. A yes, I will offer you this because you're so worth it. You are good. Now contrast that with the way that Saul and the reasons behind Saul's worship. Saul's sacrifice. It was fearful. It wasn't in response to who God is. It was in response to things going wrong in his life. And he was driven to the sacrifice from a sense of fear and necessity. Unless I do this, I'm going to lose the kingdom. No trust in the Lord. No joy. Only fear. Only paranoia. The fear of man rather than the fear of God. Saul's failures in chapter 13 and 15, you could say, were largely failures of worship. In chapter 13, he's impatient. He goes outside the prescribed way in which, and in fact, he takes things into his own hands that never were to be in his hands. He presumes to offer the sacrifice. It was Samuel was supposed to do it. He was the person. He was the designated person. And Saul overstepped his boundaries. He overstepped his authority. Because he was seeking results. He was seeking instant results. He was seeking expediency. He had an agenda that he hoped that worship would underwrite. This is worship as a means. Rather than worship as the end. We were created to worship. In chapter 15, he disobeys. God has given him an assignment. Samuel has given him an assignment to go and wipe out the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the longtime enemy of the people of God. 
God had their number from the time that Israel came out of Egypt. They're the ones that plagued them on the way out. And God says, I'm going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So he's always had it out for the Amalekites. And he says, okay, it's time to make good on my vow to blot out the Amalekites. In order to do that, I need my man, my king, to work with me and do this. Saul, here's your assignment. Here's my heart. Get rid of the Amalekites. Saul says, done, let's go. They go, chapter 15. Verse 7, it says, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Great. He did it. He redeemed himself. <clears throat> no. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. They took matters into their own hands. They took the evaluation of this spoil of war and they said, this is good. We don't need to destroy this. Again, presumption. Presuming that he knew how to apply, how to, how to exercise his authority in the best way. It's at this point the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel came to Saul, this is verse 13, and said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. This is what uh, Saul said to Samuel. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? This doesn't sound like total annihilation. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep. This is blame shifting, right? He wants to take authority and exercise discretion in the moment. But when his discretion is challenged by the man of God, he blames it on the people. This is bad rulership 101. Bad leadership 101. I want the freedom to make my own decisions, and I don't want any accountability that goes along with making a bad one. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And Saul tries to say that I did it. I did it for God. I did it for the Lord. He says, the rest we have devoted, uh, they, they spared it to sacrifice to the Lord, is what he says. Again, presumption. What did God want? To wipe the Amalekites out. Everything. They need to, they need to go. And... Saul says, well, we've spared some to offer to the Lord. 
I mean, it's just it's such presumption. Presuming that God would be pleased with our decision to disobey his commands so that we could offer him something doesn't make any sense. It's so familiar, though, isn't it? We know exactly what's going on here, right? We're seeing a picture into our own hearts. Why did you pounce on the spoil, he says, to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I mean, he keeps defending himself. He keeps trying to say, I mean, he's back and forth. He flips, he flips and flops, right? Well, we did, Spirit, but it was to offer to God. Why did you do that? Well, I did obey him. I did. I went on the mission. And I brought Agag, the king of Amalek. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, And this is really what it means to have a heart after God, to know how to worship. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saul, if you understood God, he's most pleased with an obedient heart. You don't understand it. God's not looking for, do you think that God needs the spoils of your victory? God doesn't need any of this. He, he wants and he desires his heart, his longing for an obedient vessel. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. How many, how many good intentions do we have that are ultimately rooted in what we think is best rather than what we've heard from God? How many of our good intentions have resulted in us twisting the whole process, explaining it, rationalizing it in our hearts, having the excuses ready to go for any that would come and challenge them? Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. It's sad. I mean, and it's pronounced and he it's he really gets to a desperate place and he kind of starts groveling before Samuel. It's really tragic what happens to Saul here. Please pardon my sin, he says, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And he says, it's because I feared the people. And Samuel says, no. I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. Really sad scene. But the first big point is that a man after God's heart knows how to worship, knows what God's looking for in worship, and wants to bring to God and offer to God what God actually desires. And that is an obedient heart, a soft heart, an open ear. That's what God wants. When we come to worship God, there's nothing that we can give to him. There's none of our ideas that he is really interested in until, until our heart is soft and we are knelt before him. And then the interesting thing is that he will open up a dialogue with us and say, well, what do you think? 
Once our hearts are humble. Once our hearts are humble. Number two, and they won't all be as long as, as that one. Number two, the man after God's heart, and it really does revolve around worship. That's such a crucial thing. As you go through the rest of uh, First and Second Samuel, you're going to see the you're going to see how the man after God's heart, the priority that he places on worship, as he goes to establish the kingdom. It's really amazing. Number two, a man after God's heart is prepared to do the will of God, regardless of apparent impossibility. So this is where in these two bookends of Saul's disobediences, we get this wonderful story about Jonathan and the armor bearer. And here's what, he, here's what it says, and we don't have time to go through the whole story. It's beautiful. You read it this week. It's such a great story of faith, a man of faith, and someone who's willing to unite his heart to the man of faith and say, let's do this together. Let's read in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Right? This is the opposite of Saul's heart. Hey, no, we, we're hosed. <laughs> we got nothing. But if God decides to intervene in this situation, checkmate. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't care if we have one of us, two of us, two million of us. God gives the victory. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. This is a heart after God. This is a heart that understands God's. And it's similar to the heart that's in David. Look in chapter 17, verse 45. Goliath is coming out, saying his thing. And he, David gets to the battlefield. The Philistine said to David... Come to me, I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I know who I am. I know who God is. This is the same David that just before this told Saul, who was trying to equip him with armor, human armor, he said, no, I don't need that. This is a heart after God. I understand. I, I, I don't calculate life according to human standards. If God's going to do this thing, if God says to do it, I know that he's going to be with me to do it, and I don't, have to, I don't have to make anything happen. I have to walk with him. I trust him. Stand still and watch the Lord move. So man after God's heart is prepared to do the will of God. Even if it seems like there's no possible way. Okay. Number three, a man, is, a man after God's heart gives himself to others whose heart is after God. In chapter 18... After Saul is kind of debriefing with David after he defeats Goliath. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. They had, he had just been describing Saul's like, what, how in the world, what is going on here? 
Who are you? Who is this kid? How did this happen? And Jonathan's sitting there and he goes, I know exactly how it happened. It happened to me a couple chapters ago. The Lord is not hindered by save, to save by many or by few. David gets what I got. And that's what knit their souls together. All right, Saul's dad didn't get it. But jo- or, or, uh, Jonathan's dad did not get it. But when he heard David talking, he said, that's somebody who gets it. That's a heart after God. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This over any other bond is what unites the people of God. Two hearts after God. That's, that's what unites them. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that, he, that can unite two people and the people of God. Because it, the, the people of God is such a diverse group. There's no amount of common interest that could run all the way through every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But every tribe, every tongue, every nation can have a heart after God. And so if your heart is after God, my heart is after God, my soul is knit to yours. Because I know you know, and you know that I know, and we've got it. In the New Testament, there's a great word for this. It's homothumadon. It means one accord, of one mind, of one heart. What is the one heart? It's the heart after God. That's what unites the people of God. Number four, a man's... A man after God's heart strengthens himself in the Lord in the midst of trials. Now, that sounds sounds individualistic. It sounds like self-help. What's going on here? This is important. And I think we need to hear this. In chapter 30, David, by the way, is going to go into exile, the end of 1 Samuel, in the last half of it. As Saul's kingdom continues to flame out, David goes into exile, and then he finally comes back. But here in chapter 30, it's toward the end of the exile. By the way, um, there's a lot, there's many of the Psalms, and I think book two of the Psalms, book one or two, um, are keyed to certain events during David's time in exile called the Exile Psalms. So make sure you look those up as you're going through. Uh, Chad or Kelly will probably point that out as you go. But go read those Psalms because you see a great example of a man who's in a very dark place. And now he's relating to God in that dark place. I mean, you can read the story and you're like, oh my goodness. He was cast out. I mean, he was rejected. He lost his best friend, his best friend's dad, a father figure in his life, hurling spears at him at the dinner table. And he just has to go away. And he has to go and basically um, sell himself out to the Philistines just to buy time until the right time. But in all of that, it says he had taken, um, he had established a home in Ziklag. But the Amalekites made a raid. <laughs> I mean, thank you, Saul, for not wiping them out. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. 
They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Terrible situation. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. That's a really cool story, Abigail. She's pretty cool. Bookmark that one. Verse 6, and David was greatly distressed. Because the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. I mean, (laughs) the lowest of the low. And here's where it says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He still has a heart after God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Go read those Psalms and you get an inside view of how he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. There's a lot to be said for encouragement and needing others, relying on each other, bearing with each other, helping each other. But there will come a time in your life, you've probably been there already, when you don't really have anyone, or so it seems. Where there's just, it doesn't seem to be anyone. And you need to understand how to take refuge in the Lord and strengthen yourself in Him. If, I mean, God wants us to encourage each other. God wants us to bear one another's burdens. But there is a point in the road where it's, it's lonely. And you are alone. And that's where God calls you to strengthen yourself in Him. And knowing how to do that, having a heart after God means knowing that if there is nobody, if I am completely alone, if everything has been completely taken away from me, I can strengthen myself in the Lord. He is there. I can take refuge in him. Finally, number five, a man after God's heart submits to the anointing of others in the fear of God. This is what Saul failed to do. He failed to submit to the anointing of Samuel as the prophet and instead took it upon himself to offer the sacrifice. Contrast that with David. David has been anointed as king. David has been chosen as the man after God's heart. Saul's kingdom is just on the decline, on the decline. And toward the end, as David is encountering Saul, as Saul's pursuing him in the wilderness, David has two opportunities to take Saul out. And everybody in David's life is saying, this is it. This is what the Lord, the Lord has give, finally given him into your hands. They're even invoking the plan of God. This is it. The plan's coming to fruition. And David refuses. And he says, in two situations where he has the opportunity to rid himself of the threat on his life, It says, David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is chapter 24, verse 5. Afterward, David's heart struck him. His heart struck him. The heart after God. 
because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. He still acknowledged as, as broken as he was, as rejected as he was, he still acknowledged it wasn't because of Saul. It was because of Yahweh. Yahweh anointed this man. This man's still in the position of king. And it is not up to me to make the decision about how he meets the end of his life. It's in the Lord's hands. And this is a profound principle that we desperately need. Because it was God's will for David to reign. It was God's will to bring Saul's kingdom to an end. But it was not God's will for David to decide exactly how that played out in real life. And so a man with a heart after God lets God work his plan out in his timing. Leaves vengeance to the Lord. It does not force God's hand. does not force the purposes of God into situations. God knows what he's doing. (laughs) And we're to remain soft and yielded to, to his timing. All right, so these are great descriptions of real life examples of David's heart after God. What it means to have a heart after God. But God saw in David a heart after him before any of these happened, right? God said, I have sought out a man after my own heart, not because he was slaying Goliath, not because he was doing all these great military exploits by by trusting in God. God said, he's a man after my heart. When? When he was taking care of his dad's sheep and was the forgotten brother. There was something about the way that he was living his life in the sheep fields that God said, that guy. We don't need varsity all-star Saul. We we see how that little experiment played out. Who do we want to put at the head of this people? This guy, David, the youngest, the least. That's really what his family, when Samuel was going to anoint the sons of Jesse, they said, oh, Oh, yeah, it's just David, the least. And God says, yes, that's the one. And when he goes to fight Goliath, do you see how how much care he took to make sure that the sheep were taken care of back at home? That's a heart after God. He He didn't even leave his dad hanging high and dry to go and save Israel. He went to help save Israel and made sure that the sheep were taken care of before he left. That's a heart after God. So God saw in David a heart after his own heart before any of these things happen. In the simple daily task of serving his father and taking care of the sheep. Where do you cultivate a heart after God that can lead to great victories for the people of God, that can lead to you taking authority over the area of life that God has assigned to you in a way that brings the sunrise and the blessing and the flourishing life that God wants his rulers to bring? 
Where do you learn? Where do you cultivate that heart? In just very simple, everyday obedience to God. Little sacrifices, doing what he wants, doing what's before you with a joyful heart of sacrifice. That's where God looks to find those that he's going to use in mighty ways in his kingdom. He doesn't look to the wealthy. Go read Hannah's song. He brings down the proud and he lifts up the humble. That's the whole shape of this whole story. Those who are mighty, the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees the heart. God's got a very different measure of the heart. And really, I think it comes back to worship. If we genuinely worship God, this heart is inside of us. If we honestly surrender ourselves to him and seek him with our whole heart, we can begin to live the kind of life that David lived. Because it it wasn't anything about his abilities, his natural abilities. It was about his heart after God. And the final, thing, the final thing I want to say, and this will call us to the table tonight, is that God saw this, God recognized this heart in David because he already knew what it looked like. How did God already know what this heart looked like? How did he know what he was looking for? And he's known it from the foundation of the world. It's the heart of his son. It's the heart of his son. He saw in David the heart of a son selflessly serving his father and said, Hey, I know that guy. (laughs) I know that guy. God has chosen that man from before the foundation of the world. He has said, this is what life is. This is what a a human being is for. And Ephesians says, he chose us. He chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world. Before Adam took his first breath, God said, My son. God was well pleased with his son and said, He was so well pleased, he said, Let's, We need more. Let's make more. Right? And so God saw this heart in David because he knew it. It was the heart of his son. And everyone who is in Christ, God looks down and he sees, yes, that's it. That's what you're for. There's a heart after me. We don't have to go away and and figure out how to have a heart after God. We need to lay ourselves at the feet of Jesus, die to our old self, put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, we put on the greatest heart after God there ever was. Amen? Amen? So let's remember that as we come to the table tonight. Let's partake of, I mean, do you want to see a heart after God? Look at the broken body and the poured out blood of his son, Jesus. This is a life lived from a place of having a heart after God. This is what it looks like. And this is why we remember this every week and we come to the table. This is what it looks like. This is what it means to have a heart after God. To, in obedience to him, lay our lives down at whatever cost to ourselves in complete trust not evaluating according to human standards what's the return on our investment <laughs> the return on investment is fellowship with the father and the son 
and the Holy Spirit. Beautiful life. Blessing forevermore. Amen?